Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there will be no federal election, for now anyway. The NDP decided to stand with the Liberals against an anti-corruption committee motion. What did we learn from it? We'll talk with John Iverson from the National Post. Tonight, the second and final debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We'll talk about what we can expect. And Hamilton City Council received an update from Stelco on its vision for hundreds of acres of surplus land in the north end of the city. City Councilor John Paul Dankel joins us with those details. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There was a, a vote yesterday, and it was not, well, it was a confidence vote as the Liberals tried to characterize it. But uh, the reality here was that this was about an anti-corruption committee that the Conservatives were uh, pro- pro- proposing. Uh, and the uh, Trudeau government responded by saying, look, if this thing passes, they, we take that as a non-confidence motion. So we could have had an election yesterday. Global News' Amanda Conley's got the details. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh kept Canadians guessing on how his party would vote as the prospect of a snap election loomed Wednesday. We're looking at options, but I want to make Canadians absolutely clear that we are not going to give the Prime Minister the election he's looking for. But in a key confidence vote that afternoon, his party sided with the Liberal government, defeating a Conservative motion to probe allegations of unethical pandemic spending. Three Green and two independent MPs also backed the government, among them Jody Wilson-Raybould, who called the Liberal decision to risk an election, quote, shameful. Their decisions mean Canadians are not heading back to the polls, at least for now. Amanda Connolly, Global News, Ottawa. John Iverson, uh, National Affairs columnist with the uh, National Post, writes about this today. Five things we learned from the folly in the Commons on Wednesday, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, John. How are you today? Morning, Bill. How are you doing? Good. A pox on all of their houses. I mean, this was not their shining moment yesterday, was it? No, I think I, I, I said if uh, anybody ran on the platform of uh, barring anybody who wanted to be a politician from being one, they, they would probably win a landslide at the moment. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, the political classes in disrepute all across the board. The Conservatives are bringing forward a, a pretty incendiary motion. Um kind of stupid from their point of view, given the fact that if there was an election, they'd probably lose it. And then, of course, Justin Trudeau for, for saying, you know, normal parliamentary procedure, an opposition day motion uh, will paralyze the government. Well, you know, opposition day motions since time immemorial have criticized governments for being incompetent and uh, lacking virtue. This was no different. And uh, it's, you know, this set a precedent that said, uh, we could have an election over an opposition day motion. The Conservatives are going to bring forward another motion, which seems to me to be equally liable to to be a, a, a casus bellum for a, for an election. And, and there lies the problem. For, for listeners who may not know this, so that this is another opposition day, and they're going to bring a motion. This is going to have to do with health care spending, uh, which is really you know going to be pan- pandemic spending, uh, some of the programs that they have already announced, with wide-sweeping powers, not unlike what they're proposing with this anti-corruption thing. So I, I'm, before I heard that, I thought, John, i got to ask you, they, have they learned anything from yesterday? Apparently not. Well, let's see if he deems it a confidence motion. I mean, yeah. the, Pablo Rodriguez, the House leader, came out the other day and said, well, you know, this committee would require the Prime Minister and Ministers and senior public servants to appear before the committee and uh, spend their time producing documents. Well, that's equally true of this, of the, the, the latest Opposition Day motion. But that's always the case. You know, I mean, the, the, the committees have the power to call whoever they want as witness. Um, the only exception is the Governor-General. 
So it's we've got into a, a, a quagmire here. It's hard to see how we get out of it. It seems to me that the government wants an election. The NDP keeps propping them up. The government doesn't want to be propped up. The NDP's left looking like a, a bunch of lapdogs. But if you saw the MPs as they voted yesterday, there they were mutinous looks in their eyes. They hated doing that. And uh, I think at some point the NDP has got to find a, uh, a substantive issue with which to break on the Liberals and, and potentially cause an election. And I think that that might be the, uh, the fiscal update. Even though the, 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 the NDP backed the speech from the throne, there's still leeway for them to say, well, what was promised in the speech from the throne is not in the fiscal update and therefore we're not backing it. What will they do today if, if this motion comes forward as, uh, as Mr. O'Toole is suggesting that it will? I, and again, I guess it really plays into whether or not uh, the Prime Minister is going to call this a non-confidence vote again. Well, he, he hasn't received a good press for doing what he did. I mean, I don't think the public is impressed by him putting his own personal political ambition above the health and well-being of Canadians. And that, to me, is what he's done. So maybe he's learned a lesson. I mean, you know, I wrote a book about him and, and how he had learned mm-hmm. various lessons over the years. Um, it was called The Education of a Prime Minister. Well, let's, let's hope that there was an education for the Prime Minister yesterday. When you start looking at intent uh, about who was trying to do what and what their, their rationalization was for the way that they acted yesterday and the day before that, clearly, John, uh, the, the fact is, I, I assumed, I had John Malloy, a former Ontario cabinet minister on the show yesterday, and he was a house leader, of course, back with the minority McGuinty government. And I said, how, what happens in a situation like this? He says, well, the phones are going back and forth. You know, okay, are you going to be with us? Gonna, we'll promise you this. Uh, we found out yesterday that there was no conversation between the Liberals and the NDP here, uh, which, which really kind of substantiates your point of view that the Liberals were kind of hoping this thing did fail. Yeah, well, I, I think there was a conversation, and the, the NDP said... Uh, we'll back you if you give us X. And the Liberal said no. I mean, I think there was uh, a conversation about putting up the money for, uh, for for the student grant, which was the centre of the wee scandal, and redeploying that money. But the Liberals didn't want the NDP support uh, on that basis or apparently on any basis. So it, it is quite revealing Singh's comment, and it, it led him to conclude that Trudeau wanted an election. It gave him an out because he said, well, we're not going to give him what he wants. Um, it was a pretty weak excuse, to be honest. But I, but I don't disagree with him. I don't think this was the issue that you want to the hill that you want to die on. It's not it's not an issue you can explain to people and say, well, we had we're having an election because of this, and we're the cause of it. You know, it would have been the NDP would have held the balance of power. So I don't disagree with what he did, but I do think that he needs to rediscover his party's identity by um, breaking with the Liberals over something that that he can win back support from from traditional NDP supporters. Because right now, it seems to be the NDPs in free fall. Well, and, and that was the, 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 the sense I got from watching some of the social media comments about this uh, after the fact. Uh, was the, the the tone seemed to be well there go the NDP again. Uh, you know they they rail against what the government did, but then they support them on a motion like this. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, uh, not only them and the Greens supported them. Even Jody Wilson Raybould, who said it, the, the the whole thing was shameful, backed the government. I'm not quite sure why she didn't just abstain once it became clear that we weren't going to have an election. But um, yeah, the whole thing really smells a bit, and I don't think anybody comes out of it particularly well. You mentioned five things that we learned in your column today in the National Post. Uh, one of them has to do with Aaron O'Toole, and I wanted to talk to you about that because that's that's something that I was wondering about yesterday as well. 
uh, he was willing, I guess, to, to walk the plank on this and say, look, if they do that, fine, we'll go and have an election. I don't think he wanted one, but uh, talk to us about political strategy there. O'Toole is still relatively unknown uh, to the Canadian voters. Uh, their party is trailing in the Liberals, not by much. I think it's about five or six points the last polling I saw on this. Uh, was, was it politically wise for him to actually push this and figure, well, if it happens, it happens? No, I don't think it was. I mean, I think he, he was basically... You know, it was the, the, the charge of the light brigade into the valley of electoral death, you know, <laughs> charging towards the guns. And uh, he would have, he wouldn't have made it back from that charge, I don't think. I mean, he could have been the shortest lived conservative leader in history. Um, you know, you say the polls are five or six points, but the, 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 the liberals are in majority territory at the moment. Yeah. And in just about every poll, which is not surprising. I mean, you know, we had, we had a poll last week which said one in three people say they would be destitute without government support. People are anxious and the government is basically, you know, you, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And at the moment, the government is feeding one third of voters. And uh, we've seen in the Brunswick, and I think we'll see in British Columbia, and I think we'll see in Saskatchewan, that incumbent governments at the moment get re-elected and they get re-elected with majorities. And if Justin Trudeau forced an election right now and won back his majority, I don't know how Erdo two would survive that. So to me, you've got to hurry, you've got to oppose, you've got to do your job as leader of the opposition, but you don't force an election. And I think by calling it anti-corruption, an anti-corruption committee, uh, they were po- poking the bear. And you know, it's uh, you've got to be smart in these in these situations. He's only known by about one in two electors, and you can't win an election at that level. So he's got to get better known, and he's got to wait till the pandemic passes before he's deliberately brings the government down. Well, yeah, if he wants any advice about uh, how the Conservatives respond to leaders that make bad decisions, ask Andrew Scheer. Uh, you know, the, the knives came out pretty quickly there, too. And uh, you're right. I mean, he's putting his own political future at risk when he does something like this. Uh, but again, none of the leaders seem to come out of this smelling good. And, and, and you know, there's no questions about Jagmeet Singh and his his dedication now to the NDP cause. And, uh, and you know, and your point, uh, well, again, one of the five points, number four is Trudeau. Has, uh, has the prime minister forgotten that it was a year ago yesterday? that uh, he was returned to office, but with a, a minority government. And basically, that was a slap on the wrist. He seemed, yeah. uh, hum- he seemed humble the day after that, John. Well, he doesn't look very humble right now. I mean, if you saw him in the House of Commons the other day, you know, I've seen his demeanor is increasingly presidential. Uh, there's an arrogance about him that, that uh, the situation just doesn't justify. And this was purely personal. Now, whether it was personal because... Uh, he didn't want to be embarrassed over the we affair or personal because he wanted to improve his own uh, political situation. Either way, it doesn't reflect well in him. And I don't think that Canadians would judge him well in it. I don't think it'll be enough for him to lose an election. But, um, you know, that's for all the, the honeyed words about uh, putting Canadians first and their focus being on the pandemic. In this case, the focus wasn't on the pandemic. The, the focus was on the Liberal Party's electoral fortunes. And I think it was interesting to me that Christian Freeland seemed to break with that a little bit. And we saw we saw Bill Morneau break with with the, the Prime Minister's office uh, over the pandemic response, and he wanted it to be... He had one eye on the economy. Um, Christian Freeland, I think, has got her eye on keeping the economy afloat. And at the moment, that required legislation to get the wage subsidy through, the rent subsidy. She tweeted this out and said, we need to keep to uh, defeat this motion to get this stuff through and to, to get help to Canadians. Yet 
that seemed to me to be more of a case why there shouldn't be brinkmanship, why it shouldn't be a matter of confidence, than that it should. You know, it seems she made, she made a pretty good argument for Aaron O'Toole. Well, exactly, and, and and I think that was the, the consensus I heard yesterday as well. That uh, you know we got big problems in this country right now: pandemic, economy, etc. And they're all interrelated. Why the political gamesmanship? I mean, why are you playing silly games when there's a lot more important things that they should be focusing on? Yeah, I, I think that uh, certainly all the comments I've seen on social media and emails I've had uh, reiterate that point. That this was, uh, uh, you know, it would have been an election about nothing. What about in, uh, you? Uh, you mentioned Christia Freeland, and we obviously saw what the NDP, and I think you know a lot of them were okay with they. They got whipped and said, "This is what we have to vote," but we don't really want to. Uh, what about the the, the liberal backbenchers? Well, obviously, Mr. Rodriguez, who's the House leader, uh, was was a loyal ally here, and he was carrying the the, the saber for the the Prime Minister in this situation. Uh, but what about the rest of them? I mean, I, I I get the sense nobody here, especially including on the government side, was crazy about going to the polls in a situation like this because there's just too much on their plate right now. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, you've always got to look at uh, you know follow the money, or in this case, follow the motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talked to Liberal MPs who didn't love the idea, but if they had to go to the polls, they want to go when they're at 39% in the polls, not, you know, 32, 33%, which, which is where they may be after the Ethics Commissioner report comes out, uh, which we expect, you know, late this year, early next year. I mean, that's not going to be good news for the government, and they will take a hit for that. And whether it's a temporary hit or a longer-term hit, uh, they do not want to be having an election at that time. So, you know, I think most of them, felt that from their own livelihoods point of view uh this would be a good time to go when they're when they're riding high is there going to be an attempt by the government to try to to facilitate that now as you say this this kind of reminds me of how john Cretchen decided to step down just because he knew that the uh, the commission was coming out about this the sponsorship scandal figured this is as good a time as any to exit uh the liberals see dark clouds ahead uh, are they looking at a, a, a forcing an election or, or manipulating an election sometime between now and the end of the year? I would think that uh, that, that must be crossing their minds right now. I mean, they've got the, the perfect opportunity in a fiscal update stroke, mini budget, whatever it turns out to be, in late November, early December. They can engineer that so that they, they don't get NDP support, and that would just about do it, because you can't imagine the other two parties, uh, the other two major parties supporting this mini budget we know the conservatives won't i suspect the bloc won't so um yeah we could still be having an election before christmas mr blanchette seems to intent on an election too doesn't he i mean i, I think he's looking at making some gains in quebec uh that, yeah uh, they, they would probably be come out of it okay i mean they're the one party that looks like they're they're holding on i mean the conservatives would would um you know probably keep what they've got but the but the major thing is that there would be gains here and there for the liberals and they don't need that many to get to uh, to a majority territory uh, good read, as always, from John Iverson in the National Post today. John, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Thanks, Bill. All the best. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This should be a hot time tonight uh, south of the border, the final presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. 
uh, will take place. Uh, Sagar Magani has the setup for us. Last time. I just want to make sure. I want to make sure. Graduated last in your class. There was little substance and a lot of interrupting. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. Tonight's debate in Nashville will feature a mute button designed to let each candidate talk uninterrupted for two minutes about the six topics. The mute is very unfair. The president doesn't like it, and American University professor Jason Mollica figures he'll ignore it. The president will find a way to have his voice heard. Malika says that puts even more pressure on moderator Kristen Welker to play traffic cop. The president's already trashed her as biased. Sagar Magani, Washington. Well, let's talk about what could happen tonight and the impact it's going to have on the race, which of course is less than two weeks away now. Joining us is uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, good morning. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. I know we are excited about Rudy Giuliani's movie debut in the new Borat yeah. movie tomorrow, but uh, let's let's talk about the debate first with a lot, a lot of time for that later on. Uh, I, I, the point they just mentioned here about the, the mute button, I think, is a moot point. The, moot, the mute is a moot. Uh, Donald Trump is going to talk over him. He doesn't need a, a, a microphone to, to, to yell over top of anybody else. Donald Trump is Donald Trump. I, don't, I, I mean, they're trying to characterize this as he's going to be a kinder, gentler uh, candidate tonight. I just don't see that. Well, it's not in his nature. And even when he was being interviewed by his pals on Fox and Friends about his debate technique, he wouldn't even take their unsubtle suggestions, right? They kept saying over and over again, maybe not interrupt so much. And he's like, well, you know, I, I'm going to go on there and I'm going to be you know, just talking this and that and letting Joe screw up. But, you know, if he says anything that I don't like, of course I'm going to go at it. I mean, there's just no way that he can contain himself. And so because he was seen to have done so poorly in the last debate, because he seemed unhinged, and this is when you know he may have had the onset of his COVID symptoms, so presumably he's in better health now, although maybe on some steroids or something. But really all Joan needs to do is to say things that are true but damaging to the president in terms of his corona handling and things of that nature that Barack Obama's out there really pushing buttons on right now. And you're going to see Trump, you know, fight back. He cannot handle a narrative that he doesn't like. He cannot handle something said about him that's not positive. And so he can't contain himself. A mute button is nothing. One of the things I do want to caution, though, Bill, is that, you know, uh, Kristen Welker, no Chris Wallace, it doesn't matter. Nobody can really handle the president. Samantha Guthrie had the opportunity to have more of a one-on-one control of him because of the town hall set. But even her in this debate format, he's going to go at Joe. Joe is the impediment to him staying out of, presumably out of prosecution, staying in power. You know, So he's going to go at Joe, and there's nothing that any moderator, no matter how great they are, can do. So I just don't want to put that, having moderated these debates uh, in Canada, I don't want to put that kind of expectation on Kristen Walker. It's just not fair. I want to talk about strategy for for just a second. And you just referenced President Obama with his uh, his first uh, uh, speech in favor of Biden. I mean, he's made numerous numerous comments, of course, including at the convention uh, this past summer. But uh, in Philadelphia yesterday, a scathing attack against Donald Trump. I mean, some personal things as well as as some policy issues. Uh, he went right at him uh, with no holds barred. Uh, and I, I think, in hindsight, Laura, that that was, that was done on purpose. I mean, he wants to get under Donald Trump's skin, and it's not too difficult to do that with, with Trump. He's very sensitive about personal things and a number of other things, too. I, I think the Democrats want the angry Donald to show up tonight. 
Well, I do too, and I because he's out of control, and he's out of control in the stump, and he's out of control in the Oval Office for the last three years. And the biggest negative towards Trump is that he's all talk and no management ability. And we all have seen that. It's in stark relief in the number of deaths in the U.S. with COVID. And so what, what, if you look back, this is really a long-standing grudge match. I mean, it was, it was Trump who went after Obama, after Obama with that racist birtherism campaign way back. Then you had Obama at the, uh, one of those, you know, remember those, those quaint days when there were those press corps dinners where? Oh yeah, Washington, Washington press corps dinner. Well, yeah, where the presidents could handle a little bit of ribbing and, and roasting. Uh, Trump canceled them, of course. But Obama went after Trump because he was in the audience then. And then Trump allegedly decided that's when he was going to run for president against Obama. So this has been going back and forth and back and forth. And so Obama has much has really kept his powder dry in all of this until now because he's a strategist. He doesn't operate on over-emotional instinct. And so he went out there, and I thought he did two things in Philadelphia yesterday which were incredibly powerful. One was he picked up on the longstanding narrative that, that Trump has used, saying that Obama golfed too much and that Obama didn't work hard and he is a businessman, a businessman, was going to come in and work all day. Well, it's turned out he's golfed more, and he even said that the, the pandemic forced him to work more than he wanted to, which Obama used against him scathingly. He said, you know, if you'd been doing the job at all, the pandemic wouldn't be where it is. So that was a big attack. And the other thing was that Obama went to an organizing a little organizing meeting, uh, you know, where he he talked with a little girl near him and he put on, he used, grabbed a bullhorn and he made this really intimate street level conversation with people and just showed a stark contrast between him and a president who flies into an airport, brings people together in a super spreader event and says, I wish I didn't have to be here, but you people are making me show up to work hard. I mean, it was such a contrast in servant leadership, in style, and I think that Barack Obama is hurting him both with the rhetoric and with the example, and the American people are getting a reminder of what a decent president looks like. What does Joe Biden have to do tonight? And I, I, I'm going to reverse that on you in just a second about, about Trump himself. But uh, he has a lead, not a significant lead, but uh, especially in some of the, 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 the battleground states. It's, it's tight, and, and even the Biden campaign is saying it's a lot tighter than even these polls seem to indicate. Uh, what, what does Biden have to come across as today? He has to come across as he's been campaigning which is this this kind of almost mythical sense of what presidential is, right? Calm under pressure, uh, very, very, not not stoic, because they've got to show some compassion, the comforter-in-chief idea, but this idea of we can handle anything if we come together as Americans. You saw the unity ad that he premiered during the World Series. He's very much pushing this narrative of it doesn't have to be this way. We are better than this. As a nation, we'll come together. You don't have to agree with me, but I will work with you. That message, which seems a little bit folksy and even a little, you know, old-fashioned, uh, is like a calming balm for everybody who has been stressed out of their minds with this chaotic presidency. So he just needs to get up there, not make any gaffes, stay out of the numbers, stay out of the details, because that's when he trips up on himself. And he just needs to keep focusing on, let's come together, enough of this. We can lead ourselves out of this, America. I believe in you. Let's build strong going forward that's what biden's got to do just stay out of the gas stay out of the details look straight to camera like he did in the first debate that got him an unprecedented fundraising boost and just communicate directly with the american people a sense of sanity and calmness in the midst of the chaos 
All right, same question about Trump. I, I mean, his base are going to be with him no matter what. We know that. But what won him the election four years ago was disenchanted Democrats, uh, who, the, the Trump Democrats, they call them. Some, or a lot of them disenchanted just stayed home. Uh, but those, those suburban housewives he keeps talking about, the statistics seem to indicate that those college-educated people have moved over to Joe Biden right now. He's not going to win uh, with just his base. He's got to get some of those people back who seem to have abandoned him. Can he do that in one debate? Well, in 2018, we saw he lost the suburban housewife vote. He, uh, the, a lot of populations that didn't like Hillary Clinton, but really can't stand Trump, got very engaged. We've seen already a 288% jump in early voting in the U.S. There is a mobilization against this man, not necessarily for Biden, but against this man that might just end up being unprecedented. So what does he need to do? Well, there's something called the Bannon line, which is if he couldn't, Steve Bannon, of course, who we all know uh, was one of the architects of Trump's policy. Steve Bannon has said that, you know, if 3% of Republicans move over across the line towards the Democratic side, Trump can't win with his, low, with his small base. And you've got people like the Lincoln Project out there saying that they think they've got 8 to 12% of those former Republicans moving away from Trump just to put, you know, country over party. And, and so you're seeing that this real erosion of Trump's uh, soft, squishy support that he used. And, and you also see high approval ratings for Biden. So he's in a tough spot. He's not fighting against Hillary as much as he may want to invoke her name these days. So what he needs to do tonight, what he needs to do is constantly say, you think you want this socialist to rebuild the economy? I'm going to rebuild it as great as I built it before. You know, we're going to get you a vaccine. Let's put COVID behind us. Let's focus on the economy. And oh, by the way, I'm such a tough guy that Iran is trying to meddle with the election now because they don't want big tough guy Trump back in there. Biden's going to go back to the Iran deal. I mean, he has to do those two things, focus on the economy and focus on how tough he is on foreign policy and try not to stray from that. When he goes after Hunter Biden and all these silly, stupid things uh, that their narratives are trying to put out there, he looks foolish and all it does is make Joe look sympathetic. I got a minute left. I got to ask you about that. That hurriedly called a you know, media conference yesterday, uh, the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, talking about Iran and Russia. Uh, and, you know, the president wants us to make sure about this. The president doesn't even believe Russia's done anything. But he, he talked about the Iran uh, involvement in this. And essentially uh, what he described was them basically intimidating Democratic voters. Yet Ratcliffe trying to turn that around to say because they're trying to get Donald Trump. Well, if the Democrats are afraid to vote, that doesn't hurt Trump. It helps Trump. Well, this is the whole thing. I mean, you've got Iran and Russia trying to get, uh, you know, trying to get into the election and, and use intimidation tactics, at least the sort of the Proud Boy emails saying, if you vote, you're in trouble. Uh, it, it looks like bully tactics. It looks like strongman tactics. It looks like tactics you'd see in a non-democratic country. So, and, and those emails are telling Democrats to stay home, which, of course, helps Trump. Trump, though, having this been exposed, and if you saw his, his FBI people are trying to do their press conference last night, they look terrified. Uh, now that he's exposed, he's trying to spin this and say, well, you know, they're trying to make me look bad, like I'm, I'm part of some bad effort. No, what they're trying to do is suppress the vote against him, and we can all see that. So I think that that's not great ground for him to get too deep into, but it looks bad. But he will say, and his base will believe it, that, you know what, he was tough on the Iran nuclear deal, and therefore uh, they're trying to make him look bad. He'll spin it that way. I, I'm not sure that most people will buy it, though. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Always a pleasure, Laura. Thanks for this today. Thanks, Bill. Well, uh, Give a different perspective on this. I want to check in with uh, Brian J. Karam, who's, of course, sort of the executive editor for Sentinel Newspapers and political analyst on CNN uh, down in Washington. Brian, glad you could join us today. Hope you're doing well. Well, you know, I'm just dodging bullets, baby. Well, you're not, you're not going to the super spreader event, so I mean, that, that's 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 smart on your part, anyway. 
uh, how can if Trump is running from behind, which all the polls seem to indicate, Brian, how does he make that up? I mean, it, it, this is like trying to score three touchdowns in the, after the two-minute warning. It, it, can it be done? Well, yeah, the window's closing on Donald Trump, that's for sure. But how he's doing it, if you watch his super spreader events, is he's bottled and is selling fear as a national distilled libation. And those drunk on the fear, like Trump himself, they see nothing but division and discord, and they're trying to sow division and discord in order to keep him in office. And that's basically how he's trying to, that's his end game. That's his strategy, divide and conquer. And, and people are saying, is this really America? And, you know, unfortunately it is. Trump isn't the cause. He's a symptom of the divided nation. And, but he eagerly and happily manipulates fears and anger to, uh, to keep him in power. So that's why he goes to these events. He's, you know, <clears throat> one of his greatest rants is against the press and, uh, now he's upset with Kristen Welker being the moderator of the debate tonight. Well, his campaign had to agree to her to begin with, and he had nothing but good things to say with her until this past week when it became apparent he couldn't back out of the uh, debate like he did out of the town hall. So everything with him is deception, and that's his end game, and that's how he's going to try and stay in, in office. Fear, deception, divide and conquer. We surprised a that the, the, the lock her up, well, it's no, now morphed into lock them up, of course, talking about the Biden family, uh, that that's a card that he played. I mean, he just seemed to relish in that when the crowd started that chant the other day. But is that going to resonate with anybody except his base? It, well, I think right now he's resonating strongly with his base, but his base is also a bunch of QAnon supporters, racists, um, <laughs> and, and the very rich whether or not they can uh, effectively manipulate the voter turnout to keep in an office is the question. And the fear of the nation is that the country that always used to send out poll watchers and, and foreign countries to make sure their elections were free and fair, apparently need uh, poll watchers from outside countries today to make sure our elections are free and fair. Um, that's the other voter suppression and voter intimidation is a very real thing in this country. This year, it's horrendous that it would come to that in the United States. It's apparent that all he has is the base. And so in order to to win the election again with fear, he's going to try and keep people away from the polls. And um, we'll see whether or not it's successful. I suspect that it will not be. Um, I suspect that his window not only is closing, but may have indeed closed. Could he pull it off? This is Donald Trump and he has, you know, Luck be a lady tonight. He's very lucky in these things, or, or he works very hard to be lucky in these things. So, yeah, could he pull it off? Absolutely. Will he pull it off? Like I said, I don't think so. But we have to, the lesson learned, I guess, that we have to remember here is electoral college. I mean, you know, popular vote be damned. Uh, you know, it's it's not how many states he wins, it's how many states he wins with a number of electoral college votes, which really comes, comes back down to those battleground states. Florida, I guess, being the big one. And Florida right now is not, well, if he loses Florida, he loses the election, but he could even win Florida and still lose the election because of the Rust Belt states, uh, those closer to, you know, to Canada up in the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the upper Midwest. Those states, which were uh, pure, you know, he won by a, a large margin in 2016, are not with him this time around, and they are battleground states. And so if he loses Pennsylvania or Ohio and Wisconsin and Arizona, which, you know, out west. Michigan's a write-off for him, those, now too, isn't it? Trouble. 
Biden has a significant lead in Michigan uh, this, this time yeah. around, too. Yeah, and, you know, the, the thing about you have to remember is that's why the Electoral College is, is questionable, because, you know, we, we have this idea that one man, one vote, but your vote counts more in some of those states than they do in others. You could win, you could win every vote in California, you know, every popular vote. You're still only going to get, you know, 54 electoral votes or whatever it is. And whereas your vote, instead of take you how many million to get there, and then it takes far fewer votes to get the electoral votes in some other states. So that's why he won the electoral college in 2016 and did not win the popular vote. He's never won the. He's never been, you know, a popular vote guy. He's that's not. You know, he doesn't even seem to care if he wins the popular vote. It's just those electoral votes. And of course, doing the math, he's right. Well, we'll be watching with great interest. Uh, Kristen Welker, uh, of course, is well, pretty much on the hot seat now. and see how the mute button is going to work. And as I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago before you joined us, uh, Donald Trump doesn't need a mute button. I mean, he's, if he's going to yell over, he's going to yell over. Uh, whether it's going to be you know, discernible for the audience, the TV audience, who knows. But, uh, you know, he is what he is. And, uh, boy, you know, when you're feeling desperate like this, and I don't know if that he's feeling desperate. I mean, when he says he's going to win. I do. You think I do. so? I've seen him up close and personal. He is desperate. He's flailing. And, you know, I, I, you know, I said this before. When I was a kid, I went hunting with my uncle one time, and we were out in the woods, and we saw a, a raccoon that had enmeshed himself in a, in a bit of barbed wire. And he was trying desperately to both gnaw the barbed wire off his leg and gnaw his leg off, and there was blood. It was disgusting. And nothing reminds me of that more than watching the Donald Trump reelection effort. It's he is indeed panicking. That's why he's upped his ante on on his um, vituperative outbursts and why he is so overbearing and going after. He has to have an enemy, and it's not it's not sufficient to make uh, Biden his enemy. He's made the press his enemy. He's going after Leslie Stahl. In 60 minutes, he's going after Kristen Welker after he had, he, you know, he sent her out a, a nice congratulations when she got a, a, you know, a bump in her employment when she was promoted. He is desperate and flailing about desperately. And there is no doubt that he has seen the polls and is scared. We'll see how he reacts tonight. Brian, as always, thanks for the perspective. Great talking with you again today. You too, always. Take care. Brian J. Karam, of course, executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers and political analyst on CNN. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good news story for the city of Hamilton. Uh, the Stelco lands uh, have been a, a piece of controversy for a number of years right now. I mean, the, you know, these once proud steelmakers uh, just about went out of business, bankrupt a couple of different times. U.S. Steel came over and uh, kind of kept it afloat, but it didn't go well, and it certainly didn't end well. But Stelco is back. And doing quite well, thank you very much, even during a pandemic economy. Uh, but there's still an awful lot of land there that they didn't think they needed. Well, uh, the other day before Hamilton City Council's uh, committee, uh, they got some good news, actually. Peter McAllister is Stelco's uh, chief development and operations manager. And he says there's about 550 acres which are surplus to their needs down on that piece of property. But they have a plan. We believe that um, we are going to be a very unique redevelopment project uh, within the city of Hamilton and provide um, employment for the city and growth for the city. And of course, reuse um, a property that for many years has been underutilized. 
Uh, that's an understatement. Uh, John Paul Danko, the Ward 8 Councilor for the City of Hamilton, was the, the chair of that particular meeting for Public Works. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, fill in some of the gaps. Uh, JP, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. A good news story, really, from a, a longtime resident of the north end of the city. This is a great news story for the city of Hamilton, and uh, I think a great news story for Stelco as well. As you said in the intro, Stelco is absolutely back. This is a, just a, an enormous development for our city, for our taxpayers, looking at 550 acres of new development property on the industrial uh, waterfront in the port area is... Um, it, it, gets to one of our major problems as a city, and that's our the collapse of the industrial tax base in the past and all of those taxes being shifted to residential taxpayers. And th- through this project, um, it promises to bring in some new tax revenue that we haven't had in the past and, and take that burden off of those residential taxpayers. So it's, it is an absolutely fantastic news story for sure. Just to give somebody, uh, some of our listeners some perspective on this, uh, back in the glory days, and I'm talking about the 1950s and 60s, uh, when the North End was thriving with Stelco and DeFasco back in the Procter & Gamble, Firestone was down there, the industrial tax base, which essentially was located down there, accounted for about 65% of the tax revenue for the city, which did not, that, that was fabulous. So they were happy to pay it because they were all doing very, very well. But it took an awful lot of the burden off residential taxpayers. Well, that, that's more than reversed right now. The overwhelming uh, burden on, on property tax now is on residential. So anything like this has got to be good news for everybody. Absolutely. This city was built on that industrial tax base and all the employment and jobs and spin-off that goes along with it. Now, this particular property has a, has a bit of a history. You remember back in 2017, where the MPAC Corporation, which is a provincial agency, downgraded the value of these uh, vacant lands from, they were valued at $180,000 per acre down to $100 per acre. So at a stroke of a pen, the city of Hamilton lost about 2 to $3 million worth of tax revenue every single year, um, you know, and that's been going on for the past three years. So to look at, at getting this redeveloped, which will obviously change the valuation, I mean, just right there you can see the value of, of the, uh, the tax revenue from this. And that's not even getting into all of the economic spinoff from this. Um, just to get an idea of the scale and the value of this property, this is a major, major brownfield site. And if you look at a, at a, a satellite view of the city of Hamilton, you know, we kind of go along Burlington Street and you see everything that's north of Burlington Street. You don't really get a, a, a good sense of what exactly is back there because you can only kind of see, you know, the fences and the yeah. very front. But the amount of property that has been... Um, acquired by the industrial lands over the years is, is almost the same size as the, like, the entire downtown of the city. It's a massive area. It's connected to the port. It's connected to rail. It's connected to highway. And what Stelco is trying to do is not rebuild the industry of the past. What their vision is for this site, and I think they've been really clear about this, is that they're looking for new modern industry. So light industry that is environmentally sensitive, that is going to um, be an asset for our city and not not the dirty kind of historic industry that we usually think of. They're looking at things like, uh, you know, solar manufacturing, modern uh, technologies and things like that. And it's the perfect location for those interest industries. And it's also, I think, a really good 
synergy with the city Hamilton because it ties in our history as a manufacturing center, as an industrial city, with our future in high technology and, and everything that goes uh, with that. Let's, yeah, to put this, you know, we've got the Ancaster Industrial Park, which has been an overwhelming success. Uh, you've got the new one up at the East Mountain, which has done extremely well over the last little while, just off uh, the the Red Hill. Uh, the airport uh, employment lands are starting to be developed at a rapid pace right now. Uh, those are jobs for this community, and of course, they're also, uh, as you mentioned, tax base. But I, I know, in going back to my days on, on council, uh, JP, you know, when we talked to the to the economic development department about what, what's going to happen in the north end, they said, well, there aren't parcels of land big enough to really develop an industrial park. Not that they owned anyway, because uh, Stelco was privately owned. But for these guys to step up, uh, it solves their problem, but it certainly solves a big city problem too. Absolutely, it does. And it, like I said, this is a very unique opportunity, not just in Hamilton, but in uh, across Canada. There's very few sites of this nature anywhere in our country that uh, that could be redeveloped to this uh, to this magnitude and um, what Stelco is looking to do is, is they're going to maintain their core steel making operations there's there's actually about 800 acres in total they're going to maintain their core steel making on the 250 acres that they need and of course Stelco is still a very viable business and a, a very important employer for the city Hamilton but they've seen the opportunity to leverage all of that vacant land, which has just kind of been sitting there. It, it's, its history is really interesting as well, because it was basically slag that's been filled into the harbor over the years. And to redevelop it, I mean, you're, we're not going to redevelop it for condos or anything like that, because obviously it, it, it does have a history of steelmaking on the property. So the only real use for it is as industrial land. And like I said, the plan that they have for it and the vision that they have for this area is, I think, just it's such a great opportunity for the city of Hamilton. But there are a couple of buts. Uh, I know that uh, during his are. presentation, <laughs> yeah, no kidding, uh, Mr. McAllister talked about a few things. And uh, uh, one of them has to do with, as I understand it, uh, a sewer use bylaw and, uh, and something about uh, road traffic. I mean, which ties in nicely, by the way, with Hamilton's multimodal transportation system that they've developed here. I mean, as you mentioned, especially down by the waterfront, you've got rail, you've got certainly uh, you've got truck traffic there. And that's a big part of this. Uh, we have the busiest cargo airport in the country. And and, and sh so she's shipping that comes out of the harbor too. We have one of the I guess the one of the busiest harbors in southern Ontario, and right through the Great Lakes too. So it's a perfect situation. But there's some issues that need to be worked out here. I understand. There are. Um, so one of the problems is that Stelco's proposing on on legally subdividing this property into seven separate parcels, and the problem is that through our our water and sewage bylaws, we as a city need access to those parcels. So you can imagine, especially in an industrial area, we need we are responsible to um, our residents and, and we have uh, a duty to make sure that our sewers and water systems are in good working order. We need to be able to get in to inspect them and to make sure that, especially in an industrial area, what is going into the wastewater side is what's supposed to be going into the wastewater side and uh, to keep an eye on that kind of thing. So again, historically, this this is a a massive area that was developed over 100 years of steel, steel making, and there's, there's no rules back in the day when they built this stuff. So the sewer systems that are in place there, the water systems that are in place there, it was kind of just built as an ad hoc over the years. 
you know, whenever they built a new plant, they're like, oh, I guess we need a sewer for that. And they, you know, put something in. And they also didn't put, you know, build it to city standards. There was no inspection. Um, there's, there's actually very kind of few records of what's actually there. And when they built, you know, a massive plant, they weren't thinking about it being developed into an industrial park. They were thinking about how it's going to work as a, as a plant. So the, the amount of water servicing, the amount of sewage um, capacity, things like that, are not necessarily what we need for new development. So that's something that our staff are working with Stelco on. I think planning economic development staff and our public work staff are all very cognizant of how important this project is to Stelco and to the city of Hamilton. So we're, we're working together with, uh, with Stelco and their team to, you know, to come up with solutions to this because this is obviously it's in everybody's best interest for this to move forward but we still have to be cognizant that we still have responsibilities through our city processes and bylaws to make sure that things are done right is it doable to to, to come up with a compromise here oh absolutely um it's just a matter of um uh, of coming up with something that works for both uh you know, our city bylaw, our city staff, and for Stelco, and and that's going to take some negotiation. Uh, yeah, because there's going to be a cost involved in this, and that's certainly, uh, I guess, going to be a factor in these discussions. And what about time frames here? I mean, it's always fabulous to hear this, but I mean, you know, it's this is not going to—they're not going to put the shovel on the ground tomorrow. Uh, this is going to take some time for this to develop, I would think. Well, going back to 2017, when uh, there is a transition from U.S. Steel to the to the new buyer, and uh, these lands were actually supposed to be sold off to a provincially controlled uh, body as part of that settlement. Yeah, how'd and that then, work out? Yeah, so so that obviously didn't work out, and and Stelco I think realized the value of this property. So I think that they're quite keen to move on it quite quickly. Obviously, the city of Hamilton is, is our interest to have this uh, you know up and running as as soon as possible. But, you know, we still have to go through our normal processes to make sure, as I said, that things are done the way that they're supposed to be and that we're fair in applying the same processes to everybody citywide, that we're not, you know, treating one development uh, any way differently than we would treat anybody else. No, exactly. But your point about 2017 is well taken. I mean, that was supposed to be, it was an agreement between the province and all the parties involved. And that had to do, of course, with the bankruptcy and all the stuff that was going on at the time. And at the time, the city thought they had a pretty good shot of getting those lands. And they're looking with a little envy on those. And then when the uh, the province reversed that idea and Stelco came back in there, there was a, a lot of gnashing of teeth at City Hall because they, they were really looking at that as a way for to generate revenue, especially tax revenue. But it looks like uh, this is going to be a happy ending and it's going to be a, a win for everybody. I think so. Um, and, you know, again, it, it just... It's such a good fit for the city Hamilton, and it, it's something, it just seems like our city is just firing on all cylinders. And despite COVID, despite everything that's going on right now, we just hit a billion dollars in building permits. Um, it was announced a couple days ago, and that's the 10th time in 11 years. And that's in spite of COVID, in spite of the you know current state of everything that's going on. So it just seems like there's so much good news along this along the the development lines in in Hamilton and it it ties in with our our positioning with Mohawk and McMaster and education and innovation factory and everything else that's going along around the city that this is the you know the perfect uh you know it's almost the perfect storm of of economic renewal in our in our community 
Well, there's something going on here. I mean, you know, we haven't even mentioned Amazon. Of course, that announced what was a few weeks ago now, too. But the, 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 they're putting their stake down here in Hamilton as well, uh, which bodes well for the economic future here. But uh, uh, it's, it's a matter of being ready, I guess, when people are ready to look to move in situations like this. And, and uh, you know, you've got to tip your hat to the Economic Development Department for the city of Hamilton, who have this is a long-term plan. I mean, this started many, many years ago about being ready, having shovel-ready land, or having opportunities for situations like this, and keeping the lines of communication open with people like Stelco and others uh, to do this. And as uh, Norm Schlehan, the head of the, the department, is saying, he says the phone's ringing there on a pretty regular basis now. Exactly, and it's it's really interesting. So something like the Airport Employment and, and Growth District is something that uh, has been in place for a long time, and it was about being future-ready. And now all of a sudden, you mentioned Amazon, all of a sudden we're seeing this just, it's, it's like overnight almost, um, uh, redevelopment of that property and, and use and, you know, building out the vision that had been put in place quite quite some time ago. And this, the Stelco lands is, is along the same lines where we, we have to be ready in order to seize these opportunities when they come along. And uh, our planning and economic development staff do a fabulous job of recruiting business to the city. And in particular, the Stelco lands, I'm personally really excited about because it's such a unique property. It's a, it's a way to redevelop those brownfields that have just been derelict and sitting vacant for years and years. And it's also you know, in a way, it gives um, people access to some of those industrial lands that we've never had before. And there's some really, really interesting industrial architecture that's there that's left over again from, you know, the, the history of 100 years of steelmaking. And the Stelco plan is, is, is all about uh, highlighting that and celebrating, you know, the past and, and building towards the future. So, yeah. Well, I, uh, I watched that part of the meeting the other day, uh, live stream, of course, and uh, I was really pleased to see the unanimity by your, uh, your committee members, too, for this, and they're pretty enthusiastic about this. So uh, we'll follow this story and stay in touch with us, uh, John Paul. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Sooner or later, we'll be back in studio. Yes, one of these days. <laughs> I hope so. John Paul Danko, the uh, Councillor for Ward 8 and, of course, the Chair of the Public Works Committee for the City of Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.